welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable, Health of the Delaware River, Where Are We Headed? This program was recorded Thursday, March 5th, 2020 at Cooper's Riverview in Trenton, New Jersey. The health of the Delaware River is a work in progress. The river is a lot cleaner than it was in the mid-20th century when discharges from wastewater treatment plants turned it into an open sewer, in the words of the Delaware River Basin Commission. Since then, tougher regulation on discharges has boosted oxygen levels in the river, allowing fish, such as shad, to return and breed in areas that previously supported little or no aquatic life, while improving water quality for drinking and recreation. But now the gains are threatened by the Trump administration's final rollback of the Waters of the U.S. rule that protects smaller wetlands and seasonal streams from pollution or development. Since those sources feed larger waterways like the Delaware River, whose watershed supplies drinking water to some 13 million people, advocates say the measure could set back years of progress. Our panelists will address the progress that's been made in the Delaware River watershed over the last half century and examine the factors that could slow or reverse it. The panelists are Carol Collier, Senior Advisor, Watershed Management and Policy, the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University, Bruce Friedman, Director of the Division of Water Monitoring and Standards in Water Resource Management for the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. Dr. Alan Hunt, Policy Director, Kong Watershed Association. Kathy Klein, Executive Director of the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary. And Doug O'Malley, Director of Environment New Jersey. Moderating the panel is John Hurdle, environmental reporter for NJ Spotlight. And now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, will open and introduce the program. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is John Mooney. I'm the founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and really thrilled to, to have you all here uh, today for what I think is really a, a, a wonderful program um, and, and one that we're really proud to be putting on, on on an important issue to this area, but as you well know, the entire state and, and how important the Delaware uh, River Basin and the watershed is to the drinking water for, I think it's something like six million people, if I'm right on that number. Um, we have done close to 100, it may even be more, I've lost count, uh, 100 of these kinds of events over our 10 years. Yes, we're celebrating 10 years in May, by the way. Happy birthday to us. Um, and as I've, hopefully you're all familiar with our journalism, and, and I've, I've sort of coined these events as our live journalism, uh, an opportunity to get folks in the same room to have uh, similar conversations that we're hopefully bringing to you in our, in our written journalism and in our video journalism. Um, but, and I've said this before, uh, I often say this before, is it, I think in this age of, of online chatter and everything that goes on, in remote ways, um, I think it's important to get folks in the same room too and, and have these kinds of conversations. And obviously there's also the benefit of getting to know each other and networking, but I think uh, it's a different conversation when you're all sitting in the room together. And I think that's very important to what we do. Um, this is the first time at this location. Uh, I know it well because I cover the Department of Ed next door, but uh, I never thought I'd, this would be a venue, but it's wonderful and thanks to Cooper's uh, for providing it. Also, thanks for providing the Delaware River to be the backdrop of an event on the Delaware River. I think that's the first time we've actually been in a location that we're, that we're going to be talking about. Um, and I think it's great. It's a wonderful uh, old building and, and uh, will be a great place to have this conversation. 
Um, a little shameless plug um, for Spotlight. Yes, we're turning 10 years old, um, and um, we are, you know, we, we don't exist without the support of our readers and, and our followers and, and the attendees to these events. Uh, we're a nonprofit. Um, as you, many of you know, we uh, joined with WNET, NJTV. It's now, it's now been a year, um, but that does not lessen. In fact, it only heightens the need for us to raise money uh, and, and build our sustainability. And so, as I said, a shameless plug, I will be in the back. I will take your donations. Um, I will, you know, we have lots of ways to do that. Um, and if nothing else, please sign up for our newsletter. Uh, it's a great way to stay informed on a day-to-day -day and, and weekly basis. Uh, so thank you for indulging me on that. The way this works uh, is we will have a, uh, the panel discussion uh, led by uh, one of our reporters, John Hurdle. Uh, we'd like to include and involve uh, the audience in that conversation as well, and there's a couple of ways to do that. Um, one way is, of course, what's a, uh, an event like this without a hashtag, um, and it's uh, Delaware River, um, or you know, colon Del Delaware River, um, and so you can submit questions that way. Uh, into Twitter, but also there's index cards on your, on your tables. If you have a question or comment, write it down, wave to one of us walking around the outside. We will get it up to the moderator. He will do his best to include it in the conversation. We don't typically get to everyone, um, but it helps inform him what you, what you all want to hear about as well. Um, in fact, and also for those who don't, I think it's on, it may be on the program, there, there is Wi-Fi here. Uh, it's Dig Private is the, is, is the account, and Sunny Days, one word appropriate for today. Sunny Days, one word, all lower caps is the password. Uh, there's also, please, um, surveys on your tables. Please fill those out on feedback for these events. We uh, find those incredibly constructive and helpful for us to improve upon, especially we're in a new venue. Uh, we're certainly curious what you think of the coffee and, and, and the rest, and, and it helps us uh, continue to do these. Um, I also want to give a, a quick shout out to one of our old friends, and, and, um, and, and you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of his as well, as Governor Florio is with us today. Um, I, I don't know, there he is, right front and center. Um, it's, it's wonderful to have you here, and thank you very much for joining us. Um, as well as your support being critical to our survival, we can't hold these events without sponsors uh, and who underwrite these. Uh, without them, we certainly would not be able to hold them for, uh, for free. And, and uh, I know you all go to a lot of conferences out there and pay a fee. We don't, like, don't want to do that. We want these to be open to the public, um, but we can't do it without um, our sponsors to, to make that possible. So I want to introduce Steve Shallot, our business development director, who can tell you a little bit about our sponsors before we start the programming. Thank you. Thank you, John. And thanks everyone for coming. I am Steve Shallot. Um, I have a hand in producing this event, so it's uh, extremely gratifying to, to see you all here today to uh, take part in this conversation about the health of the Delaware River, a very important topic, and our panelists will certainly be able to illustrate the, the state of the river and its future um, in, in great detail, and that's uh, something we're looking forward to. John mentioned that we are unable to do these events without the support of sponsors, and uh, we are grateful today to uh, have this particular event supported by the William Penn Foundation. Uh, the William Penn Foundation is Philadelphia's largest private foundation, awarding more than $100 million each year toward quality education for Philadelphia's youngest learners, 
towards arts and culture, and toward watershed protection. The Foundation's Watershed Protection Program awards grants to ensure the Delaware River watershed becomes and remains swimmable and fishable over the long term. More than $30 million each year in this area supports journalism, research, and programs to ensure targeted forest protection, agricultural restoration, and stormwater solutions, robust and sustained regulatory protections and funding for clean water, and equitable, widespread public access to and engagement with our rivers and streams. So thank you to William Penn Foundation for their support of this event. Um, we will begin the program with our panelists in a moment. John Hurdle uh, and Mooney will come back up here briefly. Uh, first, though, we have to introduce the topic, um, a video produced by our partner, our sister organization, NJTV News, to um, give us a little bit of a primer on the discussion, which is then to immediately follow. So uh, thank you again. With that, we'll roll the video, and then we'll begin our program. Thank you very much. At 330 miles long, the Delaware River supplies water to 13.3 million people in New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New York. Whenever you stand on a bank of the river, wherever you are across its entire length, you're looking across at another state. So it shows you know, the need for that interstate collaboration, as well as just showing that the river is a boundary, but it's also a connector. Delaware River Basin Communication Specialist Kate Schmidt says in addition to supplying clean drinking water to the tri-state area, the undammed river is filled with wildlife. It's wild, it's scenic, it's working. Um, you know, that's the beauty and the uniqueness of the Delaware. It's a living river and also a working river. We have the largest freshwater port in the world, as well as, you know, endangered species and bald eagles and all types of things and a, and a billion dollar industry around the river in terms of recreation. And it has a rich history dating back to the American Revolutionary War. Right on the banks of the Delaware River in Titusville, New Jersey, right across the river from us is Pennsylvania. And we actually are at the spot where Washington crossed the Delaware in 1776. Despite the river flowing through four different states, it's anything but political. That's because in 1961, President Kennedy and all four state governors signed a law that saw a unified approach to managing the river system without regard to political boundaries. The members of this regional body are the Delaware River Basin Commission. We have about 35 full-time staff, so we are a small agency um, with a pretty big jurisdiction and mission. The commission was one of the first agencies to start working on water quality in the basin. The commission's missions are um, to ensure that we have clean and ample water, so enough water supply, enough clean water to, you know, for all of the competing needs. So for all of the 13.3 million people, as well as um, aquatic life, animals, and everything else that depends on it, from industry to agriculture to, you know, to drinking water. Funding for the basin comes from the federal government, grants, a water supply storage fund, and the four basin states. The commission is now looking at how climate change is going to impact the water resources of the basin. In Titusville, Raven Santana and JTV News. Thank you, Raven, from afar. Um, that was great. So could our panelists, I think you know who you are, hopefully you know who you are, uh, please join us. Um, while I enjoy, uh, introduce John Hurdle, um, John has been a longtime writer for us. He's a, a freelance, come, come on up while I do this. Uh, longtime writer for us, focusing on environmental and, and water uh, issues. Um, a freelance journalist who's also written for the New York Times, WHYY, WDDE in Delaware, 
Um, I also just learned today that he's the author of two books, uh, both of them travel books, one on the Swiss Alps and the other one on the Austrian Alps. And I told him that anytime we're going to be doing a roundtable on, on either of those topics, he will certainly be back. So um, I want to introduce John Hurdle and uh, look forward to the conversation to come. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks very much, John, uh, th and thank you all for coming. Great to see you all here today. It's, uh, we're looking forward to a really interesting uh, discussion. Um, so uh, I'm just going to, uh, in, a, in a moment, I'll, I'll uh, introduce our panelists uh, or allow them to introduce themselves. Um, but before that, I just want to make a, a couple of remarks just to sort of frame the discussion here. Um, and so, you know, the, just to kick this off, uh, the river has shown a big improvement in the condition of its water uh, since the middle of the 20th century, when it was badly polluted by human and industrial effluent. Since then, wastewater treatment plants have been forced to clean up their output, thanks in part to the Federal Clean Water Act of 1972. Uh, the 330-mile-long river from upstate New York to the Delaware Bay now has much higher levels of dissolved, dissolved oxygen, a crucial indicator of its health, allowing migratory fish to swim upstream from Philadelphia, where, where severe pollution in the 1960s drastically reduced oxygen in the water and blocked their passage. Improved water quality also has benefits for the thir uh, 13 million people who depend on the watershed for their drinking water and has made the river more inviting for swimmers, boaters and fishermen. Now, uh, the river's advocates, including uh, the Delaware River Basin Commission, uh, the environmental agencies of the four basin states and numerous non-profit and citizen groups, are asking how they can defend the improvements and stop new factors like climate change or regulatory rollback undoing the good work of the last half century. To that end, uh, we'll be looking at how climate change could affect the quantity and quality of water supply, whether drinking water intakes are threatened by, the, by salt water as rising ocean levels in the tidal section of the river here uh, creep up creep up into that section, and how the river will be affected by the droughts and storms and increasing temperatures that are expected to come, or maybe are already coming, with climate change. I'll also be asking our panelists for their views on another threat to the basin's environmental quality, uh, the Trump administration's recent rollback of the waters of the US rule, uh, which will remove federal protection from some wetlands and intermittent streams uh, that supply the main Delaware River and its tributaries. Critics say uh, the rule will make it easier, easier for developers or farmers to build on or cultivate sources, uh, land at, uh, that contain these sources of clean water, and that pollutants are now more likely to filter through to larger water bodies. So that's uh, kind of my attempt to sort of set the table on this discussion. Um, and I just, so now I'd just like to introduce our panelists and ask them to say a few words about their uh, professional backgrounds and, uh, and what sort of, and the reason for their interest in the Delaware River. Um, to my immediate left here is, uh, is Doug O'Malley, who's the uh, Director of Environment New Jersey. Uh, to Doug's left is Alan Hunt, who's Executive Director of the Musconetcong 
Water, I'm sorry, Watershed Association, got that right. Uh, to Alan's left is uh, Bruce Friedman, who is the uh, Director of the Division of Water, uh, water Monitoring and Standards, uh, Water Resource Management at the, in the uh, New Jersey DEP. Um, to Bruce's left is Kathy Klein, who is the Executive Director of the uh, partnership for the Delaware Estuary, uh, and um, for the, anybody who might not know what that is, I'm sure she will be f uh, bringing us up to speed. Uh, and finally, at the, the, uh, the end there, uh, Carol Collier, currently a senior advisor for watershed management and policy at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University in Philadelphia, uh, and the uh, immediate past executive director, I think I got that right, of the DRBC. All right, well, that was a, that, you'll have to get a snappier title than that, Carol. But anyway, um, good. Uh, so, um, so if we could just go, uh, the panelists, in, in order here, just uh, please sort of introduce your talk about, for just a couple of minutes each, about your professional backgrounds and the reasons for your interest in the Delaware River. Doug, do you want to start? Great. Um, so first off, again, thank you to New Jersey Spotlight and my fellow, fellow panelists and everyone in the audience. Uh, I think uh, a lot of us have uh, paid attention to these issues, not just for years, but for decades. So as, um, as John said, uh, I serve as the Director for Environment New Jersey. We represent more than 20,000 citizen members uh, across this state. And one of the, the core issues that we worked on as an organization for, for decades is, is water quality. And that's why, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I've worked in, in Trenton for close to, to two decades now on water quality. And there's always, you know, a little bit of a disconnect in, in some ways because the state house is almost a stone's throw away, and the Delaware is literally right next to right next to us. But there's always a disconnect between our, our state policy and our waterways, acknowledging that, you know, our what we do as as a state and what we do as decision makers directly impacts what happens in the Delaware. And I think the Delaware in many ways is a case study of how policy has succeeded. Because you know, if we look back not just you know, to earlier this century, but less than 50 years ago, the Delaware was an open sewer. You know, so much so that you could literally smell the Delaware from the air, 5,000 feet above, 5,000 feet in the air. You had the hulls of ships uh, that were chipped to Hoff because of the, the amount of pollution in the water. And since the passage of the Clean Water Act, we've seen a massive recovery for, for the Delaware. And partially it's, it's a recovery based on the, the fact that we have less industrial pollution that's being directly discharged into the, the river. The toxic release inventory, which just recently came out for 2018, uh, shows uh, again a, a decrease, not just statewide, but also in a direct discharges to the river. Um, this historically was the greatest challenge the river faced, and I, I want to not only to recognize Governor Florio, but to specifically thank him again more than 30 years later for the passage of the Clean Water Enforcement Act, because that was a statewide <laughs> battle over the course of the 1980s to ensure that we were having mandatory, um, mandatory minimum fines on polluters for violating their permits. That was the, the greatest threat that rivers all across the state, but especially the Delaware faced. And now increasingly we're seeing new challenges to, um, to our waterways and to the, the watershed. And one of the first issues I worked on when I uh, came to Trenton to work on environmental policy was, were efforts, and, and Bruce and Alan will likely talk about this, 
uh, regarding the surface water quality standards to enforce a very particular part of the Clean Water Act called anti-degradation. It's a very simple premise. We want to protect our waterways before they become polluted. And the progress that we saw nearly 20 years ago in the McGreevy and then Cody and then Corzine administrations to put forward protections for literally hundreds and ultimately thousands of miles of waterways across the state is the kind of next step of protecting our, our waterways. And I, I wanted just to, to wrap up by saying that obviously the biggest threat that you know, this state and this world faces right now is from climate change. And the impact of climate change on our waterways is immense. We'll talk later about the salt front regarding uh, the Delaware River. But I did just want to reference uh, the groundbreaking work that the DEP is taking on uh, under Executive Order 100 by uh, Governor Murphy to finally link our land use decisions with their impact on carbon pollution. And that, that, has a, that, is a huge, that is a huge impact. That's obviously going to inform uh, some of the, the greatest challenges that we need to, to take on. So with that, let me pass it on. Thanks. Alan. Good morning. I'm Alan Hunt. I'm the Director of Policy and Grants of the Musconetcon Watershed Association. The Musconetcon Watershed is the largest New Jersey tributary to the Delaware River. It's a favorite trout fishing stream. People love to go paddling on it, and many sections of it are designated as a national wild and scenic river. So I have a question for you. How many of you have been out to the Musconetcon Watershed? This is most people in the room. I'd say about 80%. Uh, it's a beautiful area. It's very scenic. We have wooded ridges. Uh, the river passes through farm fields and historic hamlets. The Watershed Association was formed in 92. We're a nonprofit, community-based association. We're up to seven staff now, full-time and part-time. And what we do on a daily basis is we try to protect the watershed, uh, the water quality, and we also try to protect its cultural and historic resources and promote recreation on the river. We do this through a variety of ways. Uh, one is we have a river management council where we work with our local municipalities and counties and meet every other month. So we're forming partnerships at the local level to discuss things like zoning, um, changes in state regulations, how the Highlands Act funding can be utilized to support local planning and economic development efforts. We also do work in schools and we have an environmental educator working in schools. We get kids out to the rivers and we also do a summer camp. We do volunteer water quality monitoring on the river, and every quarter, the river watchers go out, about 20 of them, and uh, check on the water quality. We also do professional water quality science. Um, our river, we're lucky, is relatively clean. We do have some issues around water quality. Uh, we're on the 303D list for bacteria, and we have a TMDL, total maximum daily load, to reduce bacteria by 93%. Uh, we also have... Um, carbonate bedrock, where the groundwater contributes clean water to the river, and keeps it cold, so it's great habitat for fish. But that also means for our hydrology, we have these intermittent streams that sometimes disappear, don't make their flow all the way down to the river, and they're important resources to protect. Um, lastly, I would like to mention that, um, you know, we're also in the Highlands area, in the Highlands Act. We're also the only watershed entirely in the Highlands uh, region. And so that also gives us a little bit of a special place there with how that act affects um, water quality and land use decisions. So with that, I'll pass it on to Bruce, and we're very happy to be here, and thank you for hosting the event and the support of the William Penn Foundation for having us here. Thank you. Bruce. Thank you. Good morning. Um, it's great to be here. I really appreciate um, the opportunity, John, Steve. 
for uh, bringing me on board. Um, really, I don't have much to say now that Doug has pretty much covered everything now. Um, so obviously, I have a both personal and professional um, attachment to protecting water quality. Sorry, yeah. Bruce, could you hold the microphone sure, up a little bit? Sure, sure. Thank you. Absolutely. So I've spent 31 years in the DEP, basically dedicating what I do to protecting water quality, starting off seven years in water compliance and enforcement, followed by a number of years in Egypti's permitting, and now as director of the Division of Water Monitoring and Standards. It's my pleasure to head up a number of groups um, and a number of programs that are specifically designed to improve water quality in New Jersey, and I, and I think we're doing that. And it's really refreshing uh, to be in a position now um, where we're able to do our, our work and uh, really try to get at some of the issues that are really affecting uh, the environment today. Um, in my division, we have three bureaus, uh, the Bureau of Environmental Analysis, Restoration, and Standards. Uh, we do the surface water quality standards, the groundwater quality standards, the integrated report, the 303D list, we do TMDL development, water restoration plans, non-point source pollution grants, 319H. We do the water quality management program, which directly deals with development in the state. And we also run the New Jersey Beaches program and the Clean Shores program. So I mean, right there is so many programs within the DEP which are really designed not only to protect, but also to restore and identify those waters that need restoration. Um, also, through the surface water quality standards, we were just able to, uh, well, we're just ready to adopt a new C1 rule, which makes the most sense from a management perspective, which is to protect those waters that are already high quality, rather than to get them on an integrated report impaired waters list and then try to spend millions of dollars to bring them back up to where they need to be. So from a cost-effective standpoint and an efficiency standpoint, I think protecting our high quality waters is, makes the most sense. Um, we also have the Bureau of Freshwater and Biological Monitoring, which has rivers and streams monitoring network, a lakes monitoring network, AMNET, which is micro-invertebrate uh, network, uh, fish electroshocking program, harmful algal bloom response. Um, unfortunately, um, we've been very busy. Last year was not a good season for New Jersey lakes or harmful algal blooms. Um, we were extremely busy. We, we, uh, we had probably twice as many reports of harmful algal blooms and nearly twice as many confirmed, uh, confirmed actual occurrences of harmful algal blooms. And harmful algal blooms, you know, is not a New Jersey problem. It's a problem here in the Northeast. It's a problem nationally. It's a problem globally. But when you take the situation of uh, over-enrichment of our lakes, uh, eutrophication of our lakes, then you add in climate change, um, warmer air temperatures, warmer water temperatures, uh, more uh, frequent rain events of higher intensity moving the non-point source pollution into our lakes, it's like a perfect storm. And uh, we've put together a number of initiatives. We've had uh, put out almost $13.5 million in grants to address harmful algal blooms, but it's not an issue where you can just throw money and expect it to go away. It's going to persist. And it's really, um, it's a, one of the uh, contaminants of emerging concern that is really uh, going to test us for years to come. Um, we also have the Bureau of Marine Water Monitoring, which is a state-certified lab for wet chemistry, Bactine, and advanced micro. Uh, one of the things that we've really done in the Bureau of Marine Water Monitoring is, is, monitoring is advance 
our microbial source tracking, and that's been a big part to try to address some of the bacteria problems that we have in our waters so we can, um, you know, everything should be for primary recreation, and, that, and that's our goal. So with that, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it on. Thank you Thank very you. much. Kathy. Good morning. I'm Kathy Klein. I'm the executive director of the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary, and it's a, an honor to be up here on this panel with such an esteemed group of of individuals who are working on behalf of our watershed. And I'm with the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary, as I said, we're a nonprofit regional organization and we're based in Wilmington, Delaware, and we are the host and partner in the Delaware Estuary Program. And for those of you who are not aware of the National Estuary Program, it is an initiative out of EPA. It's under the Clean Water Act. It's a non-regulatory program, and there are 28 estuaries in the country that are part of the National Estuary Program. And EPA was, was wise. They, they recognized that solving problems for these complicated ecosystems, resources, where there's many, many people who live in these regions and many, many different uses of the, of the waterways, that it was best to bring those folks together to provide support to bring those folks together to develop a plan for improving, protecting, sustaining those individual watersheds. So the Delaware Estuary Program um, developed its first comprehensive conservation management plan in 1996, and one of the actions in the plan was to create a nonprofit organization that would be focused on helping to implement the plan and also to raise money and awareness on behalf of the estuary. And so that's how our organization was, was created. We um, are 24 years old, it's hard to believe. I um, was with the organization in the beginning for 11 years, left for 11 years and just recently came back. So it's been interesting to see all the changes that have happened in the watershed over, over those 11 years. I, I was working in the watershed, but wasn't so intimately involved in, um, in many of the issues that the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary is working on. So we work with, in partnership with the three states, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Other partners, other main partners in the management structure of the estuary program include the Philadelphia Water Department, the Delaware River Basin Commission, and EPA. And we just recently, last year, completed a revision of our comprehensive conservation management plan, and it's focused in three main areas. It's focused in clean waters, healthy habitats, and strong communities. So all of the work that we do at the partnership is focused in those three areas, but we're not responsible for implementing all the actions in that plan. There's no way that we could possibly do that. So we are a science-based organization, and we work collabor collaboratively across the estuary and, and, and up into the watershed. I, the estuary is, is such a hard thing to describe to people because we're really technically not our region of concern is not really even the estuary, it goes beyond that. Carol's very familiar with this because it includes the entire Schuylkill watershed, which is only tidal, which is only estuarine up to the falls at, at, at Fairmount Waterworks in Philadelphia. So our on the ground work is pretty extensive. We do a lot of facilitation and collaboration. We um, are involved in the Schuylkill Action Network. We're involved in the Del River Watershed Initiative. We are involved in lots of on-the-ground projects in terms of educating people about stormwater pollution prevention. We organize a lot of community activities like cleanups. We're the coordinator of the Schuylkill Scrub and the, and the South Jersey Scrub. And we do a lot of science and research. We um, 
work on monitoring wetlands in the watershed to see how they're being impacted by many different factors, most importantly by, by climate change. We are very involved in, in mussel work. I think many people know that we're building the first ever freshwater mussel hatchery for clean water in Philadelphia at Bartram's Garden. We do um, a lot of work with living shorelines. We're developing a tool that people can use to figure out the best way to build a living shoreline so that it will be sustainable over time. And we really just work with partners across the entire basin to um, get things done, to find ways to solve problems. And it's really exciting to see all the amazing things that are happening in the watershed. And I think what, what my um, interest in terms of, of moving things forward from our organization is to help connect the dots because there are a lot of things going on, but they're not necessarily connected. And so I think if we could connect those dots and speak with one voice, we would be able to do more targeted work that would have um, real water quality benefits, environmental benefits, and I think we also might be in a position to raise more money to bring into our watershed. Excellent, thank you. Carol. Good morning, everyone. Great to see such interest in this topic. You know, I grew up as a water rat in New Jersey on the water, in the water, whenever I could. So I've always liked uh, rivers and the coast. Um, have a background in aquatic ecology and also environmental planning. And so really like the idea of watershed management and bringing everybody together. I have the good fortune now of working at the Academy of Natural Sciences, which is part of Drexel University, and working on the Delaware River Watershed Initiative, which is a project kick-started by the William Penn Foundation to really look at things, if I can say this, that government doesn't do so well. Some of the things that are best from bottom up, working with farmers and farmland runoff, uh, suburban neighborhoods, municipalities. And one of the things that's really important is protecting forests where water quality is really good. And most of the forests in the basin are privately held, so that's a, a key direction. So the Academy is the lead on science for this whole effort. And so I'm involved in sort of a government liaison role and also some of this uh, municipal outreach policy and advocacy side of things. Um, I was head of the Delaware River Basin Commission for 15 years. And it was an incredible job bringing the four states and the federal government together and getting governors to take off their daytime hats and come in and look at it on the watershed basis and what that needs. And DRBC is doing incredible work, but struggling, as uh, was said in the video, they have 35 full-time staff now. They had 45, 46 when I was there, and there's just a lot on their plate, a lot of good stuff on their plate. I did want to say one thing before I hand the, the mic over. I know we're going to talk a lot about sort of the impaired areas and things that need to be fixed. But I wanted to mention the special protection waters. Anybody here familiar with that? Some, okay. So DRBC, under a different authority than the Clean Water Act, so it doesn't come under the federal legislation, has special protection waters from Trenton all the way up to the headwaters. And this is to keep the clean water clean. We think it's the longest stretch of anti-degradation in the nation. And the whole idea is no measurable change to existing water quality. The water quality is really good. And also changes in the tributary 
have to conform with this as uh, the streams hit the uh, confluences. Um, it is really, really important and, and gives the river a head start as it comes down to the more urban area. So I just wanted to give a shout out for keeping the clean water clean. Thank you very much. Well, so, uh, so Carol, I'd just like to sort of pick straight up on something that you've just said about this, uh, this bottom-up approach to conservation of the, of the river, uh, and you talked about um, doing things that government doesn't do so well. And I'm, also, I'm thinking about the, um, uh, one of the, the, I guess, the underlying principles when the Delaware River watershed was announced by William Penn back in, in uh, 2014. Um, it, the, the, one of its goals, as I understood it, was to um, kind of get away from this fragmented approach to conservation and sort of bring people, to, bring people together. So could, could you talk about how successful that has been and, and, and you know, what, the kind, what the concrete results of that have been? Sure. But let me give a shout out to my government friends first because I don't want to degrade them. It's really <laughs> important to have the top down yeah. because who's going to set the water quality standards? Who's going to look at the point source discharges? Who's going to do things like setting a special protection waters or changing the dissolved oxygen levels or recreation standards, et cetera? That's got to come top down. But it also needs to come bottom up because as you know, Things are really different than they were in the 70s. We're looking at a lot more non-point pollution, runoff from suburban neighborhoods, how land use is done, the increase in impervious cover, um, and agricultural runoff. So the, what William Penn Foundation did was look at how they can bring non-government uh, organizations, the NGOs, watershed associations, land trusts, et cetera, together to work on key areas of the basin. If they spread their money out all over the basin, it would be so diluted, so to speak, you know, you wouldn't get stuff done. So there are eight sort of clusters of watersheds. Uh, in New Jersey, that's the New Jersey Highlands, the Kirkwood Cohansee Aquifer down in South Jersey, and a bit of the uh, Pocono Kittentinny uh, up in the upper basin. And the NGOs, there's over 60 organizations involved in this effort. I mean, it's just in, an incredible uh, direction. All working together to try and improve water quality in the smaller tributaries. Um, and if you, you know, work in the smaller tributaries, the river will sort of take care of itself, right? And we have had successes. There's 500 monitoring sites. Um, the Academy of Natural Scientists, Stroud Research Center, and a number of the folks in the nonprofits are out there monitoring. There's modeling going on, and a lot of good work looking at where's the best place to use these capital dollars. You know, we want to make sure that what's going on in the ground, this could be uh, manure uh, management on farms, whole farm management, riparian buffers, all kind of good stuff is done in a way that's most cost-effective and environmentally effective. And uh, there's been a number of surveys as we've been going along. You know, it's going to take a while before we see the fish and the uh, macroinvertebrates change, but we are seeing changes in the streams. Mm. And um, we're now um, we're going into the next three-year stint, so the whole thing will be going for 10 years. It's pretty amazing. 
Excellent. Um, Cathy, given what your organization does, perhaps I, 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 you, it sounds like you're on the same page as Carol here in terms of the collaboration. Would you like to speak to that? Sure. Yes. Um, well, our organization is involved in three of the clusters, in the Schuylkill Watershed and in the Kirkwood Cohansey in New Jersey. And um, the work that's been going on there has been great. It really has provided a framework for organizations that have not traditionally worked together to come together to solve problems in a um, collective way. And it's enabled these organizations to leverage resources and to pull in expertise, which in the past was pretty decentralized. So I think it's created a great framework for working together to affect positive impacts on the environment. And, um, and we're, you know, a lot of this work is, it's on the ground. It really is boots on the ground. It's, it's doing work with farmers. We're involved in some, some stormwater um, projects up in um, Pennsylvania where we're working, bringing definitely like many, many different organizations together. A company that owns a, a piece of property where there's a business park and a school and a municipality to do a major stormwater project to impact a small, a small small tributary. So without the funding from the William Penn Foundation, this collaborative work would not be done. And I think it has really created a model for uh, moving forward in a, in a fantastic way. Thanks very much. I'd like to, uh, to go back to the, fund the, the fundamental uh, underpinning of this session here, uh, and that, that, is this, uh, that is the observation that the, the quality of the water in the Delaware River is a lot better than it was half a century ago. Um, and I'd just like to try to uh, unpack that a bit and ask, you know, uh, why that has been and, and, and how that is shown. So I was hoping that, Doug, maybe you could address that to, to kick off. So, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, the, the Clean Water Act created a, a benchmark of success and a benchmark to ensure that we're not, we're not seeing the discharges that we did in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Now, that being said, we still have many uh, you know, parts of the river and the watershed that aren't meeting water quality standards. And so, when we think of the success, the successes we've seen, uh, as Carol and Kathy were talking about, we do need a collaborative effort. We need strong government standards. We need enforcement of the Clean Water Act. We need state agencies and the DRBC to be taking on that. But we also need uh, other agencies to be uh, uh, you know, moving forward. And I, I wanted to highlight one particular example, uh, and specifically a, a waterway, the Cooper River in Camden County, and the leadership of Andy Cricken, who has recently departed as the head of CCMUA. Because if you, if you look at what has happened in Camden County and the Cooper, you know, what CCMUA did uh, is work to reduce the amount of untreated sewage that's flowing into the Cooper by 95%. And over the course of even just this last decade, working with the Environmental Infrastructure Trust to be able to go after one of the scourges of water quality that we still are struggling with in the Delaware, and one that is only gonna get worse because of the impacts of climate change and extreme weather, and that's combined sewer overflows. And when we look at the quality of the Delaware and the Cooper, CSOs are without a doubt the largest threat to water quality and to, and to public health. And I think one of the, the reasons why a, a portion of the Cooper River uh, was included in the proposal by DEP to be upgraded to category one is because the Cooper 
the Cooper water quality has gotten to be, the Cooper water quality has recovered enough to support a threatened species, the eastern palm mussel. And so, you know, the Cooper is the first stretch of urban waterway that's proposed for an upgrade for category one. That speaks volumes for the success on the Cooper and also speaks volumes on where we need to continue to go because we should not, the Cooper should not be uh, the exception that proves the rule. We need to see more stretches of urban waterways to get to be, to be able to recover from an ecological perspective. Um, and, and my last thought on this too is that not only does a recovering ecology mean good news for aquatic life, it also means good news for all of us. Because what we've also seen on the Cooper is a recovery of the uses of the river by people. And that's been led by a set of organizations, including uh, Urban Promise, which has worked to get more than 800 kids from Camden, not only on the water, but to literally build boats and, and give an opportunity to kids in Camden for the first time in many of their lives to get on the water. And that story is one that we need to replicate. We've, we've seen a, an uptick in, uh, in the uh, programs by the Adventure Aquarium. We've seen close to 20,000 people get on the Delaware uh, through the Independent Seaport Museum right across the river from Camden. Those are the successes that we need to continue to replicate. And the, my last thought on this, and this uh, refers to a, a petition which was just earlier this week submitted to the Delaware Basin Commission, uh, spearheaded by the Delaware River uh, Keeper Network, and we were a joiner on it as well, is an effort to ensure that not only that the public votes with their, with their feet in using the river and making sure that our regulation ensures that the water quality can be protective of those uses. And right now, the lower stretch of the Delaware is still secondary contact. We need to get that water quality to a place that it can sustain primary contact, not because it's a good idea, but because people are already voting with their feet and using the river as it was intended. Thank you. Uh, question for Bruce. Um, are we seeing any indications that the, that the, um, uh, the, the improvements in water quality over the last 50, 60 years are beginning to, uh, are beginning to be undermined? Uh, you know, I mean, are there any flashing danger signs that you'd like to draw attention to? Well, first, I, I just want to take a step back for a second and address the first question that um, came out about um, bottom-up. And I just want to say from a state government perspective, it's all about partnerships. Um, we can't do it alone. We rely on the boots on the ground, on these groups. I see a lot of our partners here, um, whether it's the county planners, whether it's the NGOs, whether it's the littoral society. Um, we put grant money out there, um, but we can't implement those grants. We really need the folks in this room to be doing the work for us. And we also need the feedback from these groups of where we need to concentrate our efforts. So it's, it's really a sim, uh, symbolistic uh, relationship and uh, is necessary. And I, and I thank everybody here for, for their roles in being environmental advocates. Um, as far as uh, the Delaware River, obviously, um, you know, I grew up on the river too. I, I'm a big fisherman. I, I fished from zone two all the way down to zone five. There's been tremendous improvements in water quality in the Delaware River. Um, you know, the shad migration was nearly extinct. There were dead zones in the river. Lack of DO didn't allow the migration of these fish. You know, I go out there now, I can catch smallmouth bass, largemouth bass. There's a shad run. There's striped bass. Um, it, it's just truly amazing, the improvement. Are, are we there yet? 
No. Um, there's not full propagation uh, on the Delaware River. Um, we, still don't, we still don't have areas um, where the DO is meeting criteria on a regular basis. Um, and we're working with DRBC to address that. Right now, we're helping to fund a eutrophication model, which basically is going to look and see where aren't we meeting DO, and the modeling will estimate what kind of load reductions are necessary for us to attain that standard. Um, so right now, we're looking at ammonia loading. Um, at the end of the study, it will result in pro pro likely result in uh, load reductions at the major wastewater treatment plants. Uh, to help bring that DO level up to where it needs to be. Um, that, and that's an important step, and that's, and that's where we need to be. These, these big changes that occurred were in part because of the Clean Water Act and in part because of the funding it provided to allow wastewater treatment plants to upgrade from primary to secondary treatment. It also allowed, uh, in places like Camden County, uh, the consolidation and regionalization of wastewater treatment. Uh, I mean, it's an un unfortunate that uh, CCMUA is, is located right in Camden, and that's another issue of environmental justice. Um, but the fact that it regionalized took off a lot of package plants off of the Cooper uh, River and the Newton Creek, which feeds in, and allowed that water quality to improve um, to the point where we can uh, upgrade it to C1. Um, and everybody has a right. It's not a political decision. When we do C1, it's very science-based. It's looking at the designation criteria, it's looking at the water quality, it's looking at the AMNET, the macroinvertebrates, it's looking at the um, threatened and endangered species. And if they are present, if it meets the criteria, we designate it. It's not whether um, it's gonna affect development, whether it's politically motivated, it's a science decision, and we, we feel strongly about that. Um, continued threats, yeah. Um, we're, not, we're not there yet. We need to continue to improve. Non-point source pollution is a major factor. Even if we ramp down on the wastewater treatment plants and their discharges, we still have a con sizable contribution from stormwater runoff. And it's just, it's just because of how we live. And we need to take really, I mean, it's a, it's a great time to be environmental science and to be environmental regulation and environmental ag advocacy, but it's also a scary time because we're facing so many um, different challenges right now. Mm -hmm. And the way we consume is unsustainable. And we need to change that. And it's a tough decision for people. People like their shopping, their Amazon. When I was uh, going to make my left turn into here, I saw 14 Amazon trucks take the turn off of Warren onto 29 to go make their deliveries. Mm -hmm. That has an impact on the environment. That is non-point source pollution. So there are, there are a lot of challenges, but I, I think we're going to get there, and uh, I appreciate all the help from the people in this room. Thanks. Um, Alan, if I could uh, kind of switch to you, I mean, do, to ask you to comment uh, in view of, of what Bruce has just said about your, your experience on the Musconetcon. I mean, are you seeing uh, um, any more, or are you seeing evidence of, uh, for example, an increase in non-source non pollution, uh, non-point non pollution, for example? So you can tell from the nonprofit folks up here, there's a theme about partnerships. You can't do it alone. And uh, I mentioned that you know, the MuskConnectCon has a bacteria contamination, and it comes primarily from non-point sources. And it's identified as being from um, livestock, livestock agriculture, septic systems, wildlife, and some other sources. So 
uh, I'm going to tell you a success story, and that's an example about how those partnerships work and can address that. In 2007 and 2009, we worked with Rutgers University to assess where the bacteria contamination was coming from. Um, Bruce mentioned microbial source tracking. We did some work there to try and understand, is this coming from people? Is it coming from cows? Is it coming from wildlife? And we had a good indication that in one section of the river from Hampton to Bloomsbury, one of the designated wild and scenic sections where we're encouraging people to go out on the river for recreational use, um, one of the tributaries showed up as um, having quite a bit of bacterial contamination, about a thousand times what the recommended level is supposed to be. And we knew that we would have to work with the agricultural producers there. There's a couple of dairies there. And so we worked in partnership with the North Jersey RCND, a farm conservation organization, Trout Unlimited, New Jersey Audubon, and us. And uh, with the support of the William Penn Foundation, with the support of the 319 program, which is Clean Water Act money that the state administers for non-point source pollution, we focused on that tributary. It's about uh, two, three miles long, uh, has native brook trout on it. It would be a great place to go fish if you, if you can get there. And uh, through about 10 years of restoration work, putting in riparian buffers, fencing out the livestock from the river, putting in armored stream crossings so when the, the animals did cross the stream, they weren't disturbing the river bottom, the stream bottom. Uh, we, we were able to do uh, a lot of work there in partnership with the private landowners. And that's what it takes for the non-point source pollution work. Ten years later, we went back. How do we do? We worked with Montclair State University. Microbial source tracking technology has really changed a lot since then. And we put in a whole variety of different species we were interested in. The great thing about it is, uh, through those partnerships, the bacteria on that tributary decreased by 95%. And it's actually at attainment sometimes. So we have to hit 93%. 95, statistically significant, is pretty good. We also saw that we do have impacts from uh, people from septic systems. And it's probably a combination of um, being near the river, our soils, our bedrock, and uh, the age of the septic systems that we have that as an issue. That's really what we see as a challenge going forward, is trying to address those non-point sources that get aggregated because of where we live. You know, so Bruce talked about individual choices and how we address that. Um, partnerships with municipalities to address um, septic management is really important. We don't have wastewater treatment plants where we are. We don't have packaged plants where we are. It's up to the private landowner. And again, it goes back to partnership. So one success story there about how uh, restoration work can really benefit water quality and an ongoing challenge of how we address how we, um, you know, septic management going forward. Okay. Thank you very much. I'd like to just uh, turn to the, uh, what you might see as the elephant in the room now, and that is climate change, um, and just ask uh, what, you know, how, how this is likely to affect the river. Are we going to be seeing uh, more floods, more droughts, uh, uh, increased uh, um, the, uh, the rising salt line, um, things like that, um, and, and, and what we might be able to do about it. So, uh, Carol, could you start on that? The answer is yes to all of that. Okay, well that was easy. Um, you know, when we had the floods between 2004 and 2006, I was sitting next to the lead from FEMA, I think region two, and we were just 
you know, pretty flattened by those floods, especially since it had been almost 50 years since we had had one. And he turned to me and said, this isn't the worst one, be prepared. And now that we know, you know, climate change coming, um, there's, a, there's a statement by USGS, the geological survey, that stationarity is dead. You know, we look at historic records, but we really can't rely on historic records now because there's such an unknown going forward. So maybe the flood of record that we use in the models, the flood of 55, won't be the flood in the future, or the drought of record in the 60s won't be the, the drought in the future. So we really need to be adaptive to thinking about what we might get hit by. I mean, it reminds me sort of as the virus now and everybody trying to figure out, you know, what, what we should be doing and who's in charge, et cetera. You know, we need to have our plans in place for these, these larger problems. Um, John also mentioned sea level rise and Rutgers just did a new analysis that has it up to 2.5 feet by 2050. Is that right, Dan? You know that? 2.5 feet, I think, or is it 1.5? 1.5 to 250, and then at the end of the century, you know, it's, it's over four feet. That's huge. Oh, and I think it might even be six by the end of the century under a, uh, under a high emissions scenario. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, but, you know, that not only pushes the salt up from the bay. And right now, I, I don't know how many people are aware, but there's a, a very um, significant operations program to keep that salt out of Philadelphia's drinking water, out of New Jersey Americans' drinking water. There are releases from New York City reservoirs in the very headwaters. There are other reservoirs uh, where DRBC actually owns water on the Schuylkill and the Lehigh that they can call for releases. So there's a program in place to keep that salt down and out of the drinking water sources. But as sea level comes up, that salt line is gonna get closer and closer to those intakes. What do we do? Um, do we find more fresh water somewhere to push down the river? Do we change the intakes? And then from the natural side, the Delaware has incredible freshwater tidal wetlands, very rare and in really good shape. So if that salt creeps up, what's gonna to happen to that, those freshwater wetlands? What's gonna to happen to the oyster cycles? It's really an issue and there's a lot of people studying it. City of Philadelphia is doing very good modeling. Um, the PDE has been doing work. DRBC has a model. And so it's gonna take a lot of um, really strong brain cells to come up with solutions and adapt to, adapt to this change. Uh, Kathy, do you have any thoughts on, uh, on what, if anything, could be done to prevent the salt line uh, reaching the uh, drinking water intakes on both sides of the, of the river at Philadelphia? I can, I can speak a little bit to that. Um, I have something else I'd like to add to the whole climate change sure. discussion, but um, there, there are these studies going on now to see if there are some alternative ways to, to really control where the salt line is that's not completely dependent on 
the, the city of New York DEP releasing from their reservoirs because they're concerned about having enough drinking water to provide to New York City. So the F.E. Walter study is one of the studies that's, that's being done to see if there are some alternatives. So, so what, what might the alternatives be? I mean, are we, are we talking about moving the drinking water intakes further upstream? Well, is that, I th I, that is, yeah, I think that is something that the Philadelphia Water Department is looking at. Yeah, it would be very costly, but yeah, I think all, all options are on the table. The one thing that I wanted to mention is um, really how climate change and sea level change is impacting people. I don't know how many of you have ever spent any time in the New, Jer New Jersey Bayshore um, communities, but I have some friends down there and they recently had to sell their homes and move because where they lived was being so impacted by continual flooding that there just wasn't the ability to sustain the infrastructure there. And, um, and you know, these are in many cases underserved communities. This is gonna be an increasingly important issue for us to be discussing because where many underserved communities are located, they're in areas that are prone to flooding. And um, you know, all you have to do, I, I drive up 95 all the time. I have a house in Stockton, New Jersey, and I just look at all the communities in Philadelphia and in Bucks County that are right along the river. And those are mostly underserved communities that are greatly in um, peril in terms of sea level rise. Now, so what do you mean by underserved? Underserved um, communities of color, poor communities. These are communities that were built where the factories were located. So they worked in the factories and you know, there's huge environmental justice issues related to that. But I know that in the city of Wilmington, we have a neighborhood that has, has been flooding continually and we're trying to, to mitigate that by building you know, a wetland, but we have to have some honest conversations about what are we gonna do? I mean, some of these people are going to have to move. It's, it's the reality and do you wait until, you know, it's, I mean, I'm concerned that if we don't start really talking about it now, that we're gonna get to the point where it's gonna be a complete crisis and we are not going to be prepared to help these people move to other locations where they will, they will be safe and where they will have a home. And it's very hard because people are very connected to their communities and they don't want to leave them. So I think you know, we're, we're working on that in, in Delaware through the, it's called the Rascal Initiative. It's the Resilience and Sustainable Communities League. And we're working with communities to talk to them very honestly about you know, what could potentially be coming and what the options are for them in terms of thinking about the future. Okay, thank you. Uh, Bruce, from, yes, uh, fr from your point, from a government point of view, uh, are you, is DEP um, uh, acting in the, you know, the context that, uh, that Kathy's talking about here? Yeah, thank you, John. I, w I wanted to follow up. Um, Governor Murphy and Commissioner McCabe are committed to address climate change head on. And that's a, it's a big difference. It's a shift in policy and it's a, it's a welcomed one. Um, Governor Murphy, as I think Doug had mentioned, uh, signed Ex Executive Order 100 and created the uh, uh, NJ Pact, which is protecting against climate threats. Um, so basically what we're, what we're doing right now is we're examining every rule um, and every statute and see how those rules may be modified to address, uh, to reduce emissions and to create resiliency. 
So nothing is off the table, and we're stakeholdering it right now. Some of the people may have been at one of our stakeholder meetings the other day. Um, I implore you to be part of the, the solution, help identify things, but we're really looking at some, some innovative changes, not just to address new development, but to address existing development, uh, to get people out of harm's way, um, to not put affordable housing in the floodplain, um, to not build within the riparian zone, um, and you know we're, we're trying to address trying to address this difficult challenge. But but um, I mean, how much of an effect can any one state? I mean, how, however hard New Jersey, for example, uh, is, uh, how, however hard it works to reduce emissions, clearly uh, carbon emissions are a global problem. So, so that raises the question of whether individual states should be, really be focusing on, on, on adaptation to changing climate rather than uh, attempting to bring down their own emissions. What, what do you think about that? Well, I, I obviously agree with that. Um, you know, we're, we're back in um, on the, uh, uh, the air, air emissions. Um, you know, we were we were out, and Governor Murphy brought us back in. So we're we're dealing with the other states to try to address the problem of of admissions. Um, obviously, it's a global issue. Um, we can only control what we control we can control here, uh, but we are looking to you know, like I said, address address it head on. Um, climate change brings a whole nother issues on board. I think Kathy has a, a very good point about retreat. I don't think it can be off the table. Um, I know it is on the table. It wouldn't be our first option, um, but you know, barriers, uh, levees, things like that, I don't think are realistic. And down the road, we, I think we have to look at nature-based protections, such as living shorelines, oyster reefs where possible, um, and then retreat. But you have to understand that um, the shore, our coast, is such an important economic driver for the state that that isn't going to be something that people are going to accept right away. Um, it's unfortunate, but I think it's going to be probably one of the last steps of a, of a larger um, strategy. Okay, thank you. I'd like to switch gears here for just a second uh, and to, uh, to start on one of the many questions that we've had uh, from the audience, uh, and this is actually for Doug specifically. Um, given the existing re recreational use on the lower Delaware, uh, what are the economic ramifications of upgrading to primary contact designation? And that's from um, uh, a representative of the uh, New Jersey Sustainable Business Council. Could you talk to that, Doug? Sure. So uh, I think this brings up an important question of what we look at the health of the river and the watershed, how we quantify it. And the quantification is not just on uh, you know, pure dollars and cents, but when we think of the economic vitality of the river, there is a ton of economic opportunity that's provided, provided by having a clean drinking water source, as well as having a waterway that provides a recreational mecca. So we think of what's happened over the course of the last decade up and down the Delaware is we've seen a resurgence and an interest in having waterfronts not be barriers to communities, but to be gateways. And so whether you're in Camden, uh, looking at Pine Point Park and the ability to bring back the back channel on Petty's Island and to be able to have a new uh, park on, on, uh, on Harrison uh, Street facing the, the back channel, 
that is a you know that is a waterway that as uh, Bruce was mentioning it, you know that should be open and accessible to every resident of Camden in the same way that Delaware is open and accessible to every resident of Lambertville. Uh, we need to make sure that you know we're providing more opportunities for the public to you know to actually get on the water and there's tremendous uh, there's a tremendous recreational economy that we've seen that's skyrocketed on the upper reaches of the Delaware. You know, you go on the Delaware on a summer weekend, you're going to see a ton of tubers. And that has increased uh, by, uh, you know, by a tremendous amount over the course of the last 15 years. We need to do more to be able to ensure that the lower reaches of the Delaware are also seeing that vitality. We're seeing interest in Burlington and Bristol on Burlington Island, which you know, historically was an amusement park. Uh, those are the places that the public wants to go to. When Petty's Island is, is reopened, that becomes a mecca for Camden and Pensacola. but we need to make sure the water is a place that people are comfortable getting onto. And this kind of comes back to this ultimate idea too, that our waterways are not just mixing zones. Our waterways should be fish and swimmable. That's the goal of the Clean Water Act. And that's part of the reason why we're proud to join the petition that was put forward to the DRBC, because really the secondary contact status has not been re-examined in three decades. The public is voting with their feet. There's tremendous opportunity, not only for the public to be able to use these waters, but for a recreational economy to grow out of them and an economy of uh, cities and towns that face the river as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, picking up on this, uh, on the bottom-up idea that Carol uh, introduced earlier, um, I'd just like to, there's a, a question from the audience here, uh, what can municipalities within the watershed do to help keep the Delaware clean and healthy? And I was hoping that you might be able to kick it, we could kick that off with you, Alan. Well, uh, as I mentioned, municipalities and counties are our partners, and we work with them through our River Management Council. And uh, one of the things about being designated a wild scenic river is that the municipalities had to be consulted, and they had to be involved in that promise. And, and they made a promise to um, protect the river and look after it. Our municipalities are very engaged and interested in this work. And I think the main challenge with them is making sure that they have the right resources available to know what the right thing is to do. They want to do the right thing. Many of our municipalities are rural. They have part-time planners. They don't really want to keep incurring hourly fees from the planners because then that drives up the property tax. So um, you know, where we see opportunity around here is to um, have the municipalities in the Highlands region work with the Highlands Council, provide funding for those planning efforts, and look at uh, zoning options like um, municipal level riparian zone protections, stormwater ordinances that uh, facilitate the installation of green infrastructure, so lowering the impervious cover of parking lots and roofs and trying to put in natural landscaping that will then absorb and mitigate some of the temperature issues with runoff and some of the water quality issues with runoff. Uh, you know, we see opportunities working with them on that. It really is a challenge of having enough capacity to get to each of the 26 municipalities in our watershed. And I'll point out, you know, we're in northwest New Jersey, so if you're looking at that map up there, our border as a watershed is that bright green wavy border that's going towards the eastern part of the state. We're the only watershed association up there. So that means there's a lot of municipalities that don't have a partner like us to work with. So there's a lot more opportunity to support the local engagement and municipal work to meet the opportunity that they see. And you know, the, the question that Doug had, well, why are they doing this? What motivates them? These are people that go fishing in the river, 
They go hunting in the preserves. There's been a lot of land preservation along the rivers. These are people who grew up swimming in the rivers and tubing. And those recreational resources are part of the culture there. But they're not necessarily protected in that way. Our rivers are a secondary contact. Uh, recreational use is not a designated use of our rivers. New Jersey doesn't have a process for designating recreational use, and it's something that we hope the department will look into more. Uh, and we think if you're a congressionally designated National Wild Scenic River, that's a great criteria for recreational use. That should be protected. Uh, another might be a state water trail. So we think there's some well-founded uh, bases for enshrining that recreational use, making sure that people can continue to access that, that the resources are not underprotected. And uh, from our perspective, we see our municipalities and especially our counties looking towards uh, economic development strategies around tourism and economic development, getting out on rivers like ours. And we're very happy to be engaging with folks on that level. Thank you. Uh, Carol? You know, I think this is really important because New Jersey is a local rule state. So land use is determined at the municipality level. And one of the things that the Delaware River Watershed Initiative is doing is on the policy side, really looking at how they can work with their municipalities to increase the strength of environmental ordinances. I know for one, ANJAC, the Association of New Jersey Environmental Commissions, is doing an analysis within the cluster, uh, both New Jersey, Highlands, and Kirkwood Cohansey, of all the ordinances for all the municipalities in that cluster. Who has strong ordinances now? Which townships need better ordinances? Who can they work with? Who can they prioritize? The other thing is just education of supervisors and commissioners. You know, there's so much on their plate and to work with the environmental advisory committee, committees and others, commissions and others, to really help them understand that small changes in their um, subdivision rules, et cetera, can really help both the design of the township as well as the receiving waters, and also that they're part of something bigger. How many municipalities that are, you know, high up on the Musconetcon? or up on um, you know, these tributaries, even think about the Delaware River and what, what impact they might have. I did want to say something also, if I could, about the recreation. You know, I am all for primary recreation. I think you know, we need to get to that fishable, swimmable, but we also need to think about what steps are needed. You know, right now, DRBC is, is looking uh, uh, putting a lot of effort into improving the dissolved oxygen in the estuary to support the spawning sturgeon, uh, endangered species, and others. Do you know Philadelphia used to be the caviar capital of North America when we had so many sturgeon? It's pretty incredible. We want to get back there. But anyhow, you know, a lot of work there. And to go to the next step, looking at the bacteria and the combined sewer overflows for recreation, how, how much work is needed? You know, we need some good studies of what the gap is and how we get there and what the problem is. So it's, it's not just saying they can change the designation to primary contact. It's like, what, what does that really mean to get the bacteria down enough to allow it? But there are seasonal possibilities. You know, over in Philadelphia, for the Schuylkill, they have a river cast, 
and it's like a traffic light. And you can go online and see if the river is safe to be in. They have a triathlon on the Schuylkill now. Who thought, right? Um, so maybe that can be something on the Delaware where there's certainly times of the year and certain conditions, you know, way after a storm that it probably is safe, you know, and, and, but you need to think about all the times, right? So there are things you can do. Thanks. Uh, and and while, while we're on the, the topic of the municipalities, there's, a, there's another audience question here that I just like to, I was hoping you might be able to address, Bruce, and that is, uh, so what role is there for state planning in local land use decisions that affect runoff wastewater and water quality in the river? Well, we have, we have a lot of programs that, that address um, what locals can do uh, to address non-point source pollution. Um, I worked uh, many years with Ed Frankel, who's right out there in the audience, on the uh, uh, municipal stormwater uh, rules. And each municipality in the state has a, either a tier A or a tier B Nagyptis permit. And at minimum, uh, the municipalities should be complying with their MS-4 permits. Um, all of them require municipalities to adopt certain ordinances, and ordinances are great, but what I find is that municipalities often don't like to enforce their ordinances, and that's the hard part. Um, you know, to just have an ordinance on the book saying that you have to pick up your pet waste, if you don't let educate people, make sure they understand why they need to do that, and then ensure that they do it, it doesn't really have much of an effect. Um, also to address planning, we have the Water Quality Management Planning Program, um, WQMP. Um, basically what we do is wastewater management plans. We work with county planners. We work with the local municipalities to determine sewer service areas. Essentially, a sewer service area says, where is it good to build? Where is it not good to build? And the municipalities have a strong say in that. Um, under our rule, you know, we're, we're really trying to protect environmentally sensitive areas. You exclude wetlands from the sewer service area, you exclude endangered and threatened species, uh, rank uh, two, three, and four from the uh, sewer service area. Natural heritage priority sites where we have endangered plants. Um, there's a number of provisions, but municipalities and sometimes the counties, but more of the municipalities drag their heels on doing their wastewater management plans because they don't want to exclude areas from, from being able to be built on because it inf impacts their rateables, impacts, the, impacts their tax base. Um, so it's, it's a tough thing to do, but, but we need municipalities to really help us um, get these wastewater management plans done so we can ensure that we aren't building in the 100-year flood plain, we aren't building in the riparian zone. Because you know what? Um, 50 years from now, when those places are being flooded, they're going to come to the state and say, come help fix the problem. Well, let's fix the problem now. Right. Thank you. Um, so uh, there's a, a, another question to, to uh, steer the conversation back towards the, the climate change uh, issue. Uh, we've had another question from the 
uh, from the audience, uh, and, I, and I will, it was quite a long question, so I'm going to paraphrase this. Uh, should regulatory agencies begin to curtail groundwater withdrawals as part of an overall strategy to, to reduce the effects of rising ocean and bay waters? Uh, and, and the context for this is the, uh, the recent Rutgers uh, sea level rise report, um, which estimated that um, about half of the relative sea level rise in southern Jersey is the result of land subsidence, and approximately one-third of that land subsidence is caused by recent groundwater withdrawals. Uh, so, Cathy, I was hoping that you, you, might, uh, you might address this since you've... <laughs> I'm throwing this back to Bruce. Oh. No, I'm handing it to Cathy. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we have... You know, we have programs, we have a um, state geologist, we have a water, drinking water program that looks at withdrawal rates and ensures that we're not at working at a deficit within any of the uh, watersheds. Um, you know, I, I really can't say whether we're going to move as part of New Jersey Pact into a situation where we further limit groundwater withdrawals, but it's certainly something that I can bring back uh, to the table. Mm. Uh, Doug, did you have something on that? Yeah, I, I wanted to weigh in on, on this question, but more broadly on this issue of climate change, how it impacts the watershed. Yeah. So I, I think the short answer here is that NJPAC clearly needs to look at this, and it, from our perspective, the answer is yes. Because if we're looking at the Rutgers data, which Bob Kopp put together, uh, you know, you're looking at a sea level rise of a foot over the next decade, two feet by 2050, six feet by 2100. And those numbers were revised and they're, they're, they're bigger than they used to be. And that's what we're seeing. Right now we're on the cusp of one of the warmest winters on record in New Jersey. Uh, we are uniquely vulnerable to climate change. The Northeast has some of the highest increases in precipitation. New Jersey itself has, has seen some of the highest increases in temperature. And then uh, as was referenced, we also are uh, you know, subsiding in some parts of the state. And so as part of Executive Order 100, it referenced the Rhodium Group report that says that we have $60 billion of real estate that are at risk to extreme weather events. And so that's really the frame that we need to be looking at at climate change. We have a lot on the line. And yes, we will need to adapt, but we need to be looking at mitigation factors first and foremost. And I wanted to lift up one of the comments that Bruce uh, made earlier regarding the surface water quality standards and the uh, fidelity that Bruce and his team and the whole department is using around science on guiding category one uh, protections. We uh, obviously think that the same should be used for climate science regarding NJ Pact, and that's why we put forward a letter with close to 100 organizations urging the administration to use the best available climate science by the UN IPCC panel because we're gonna to need to reduce carbon emissions by 45% over the course of this decade. And this is where, yes, New Jersey can't act alone, but we certainly need to be a leader. And this regards not just the, the NJPAC process, but also the multitude of fossil fuel projects that have been proposed across the region. And so even just in this watershed, you know, we have a proposal for a gas plant on the Musconetcong. We have a proposal for the Penn East gas pipeline on both, uh, well, it used to be both sides of the river. Um, 
we have a, a proposal for the, uh, not just a proposal, we have construction for the Southern Reliability Link through the Pinelands, even though there's a court challenge uh, regarding uh, the decision by the Pinelands Commission. Uh, we have uh, a, a you know, effort by the fracking industry to be able to, to frack in the Delaware River watershed. So those are, are just you know, some of the projects we're facing, and we need to ensure that if we're gonna have emissions go down over the course of this decade, not only that the DEP use the best available climate science to guide future NJPACT uh, regulations, but also to be using uh, you know, the best available tools at its, disposable right, at its disposal right now regarding these fossil fuel infrastructure projects. Pipelines have a huge environmental impact, and obviously they have a huge carbon impact. They're not just transporting chocolate syrup. And so when we think of the Delaware River, we think of the health of the river, we think of combined sewer overflows, we cannot disconnect it from this larger conversation of carbon emissions in this state. And, and speaking of the larger conversation, we've just had a, an audience question here. Uh, how can we engage all citizens in changing the behaviors, the behaviors that are causing continued average rising, I'm sorry, I think it's rising temperatures, uh, that is atmospheric warning, uh, warming. Um, Kathy, could you speak to that? I'm getting lobbed all the, the heavy questions here. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think that all of us have to think about how we live our lives and, and the decisions we make every single day. And for many of us, it's easier for us to adjust our lifestyles than it is for other people. I mean, you know, buy an electric car, you know, or a hybrid or, or take public transportation or, you know, don't use disposables. There are, the, the list goes on and on and on in terms of, of the lifestyle changes that we can make. I think that, um, one of the, the challenges is really making it accessible, these kinds of options for all different kinds of people, not just, I mean, look around the room. You know, we're, we're, we look pretty much the same in this room. And I think that we need to do a better job to be more inclusive and to engage all different segments of the population in solving these problems. And it, it's very, very, it's, very complicated and um, we're involved in reviving the Urban Waters Federal Partnership Program for the Delaware River and that is another national program um, that is coordinated by the federal government and really um, what it does is it provides a framework to bring the federal agencies together to solve problems and in our watershed it's concentrated in four of our, our, our the largest cities. It's Camden, Philadelphia, Chester, and Wilmington. And we're gonna be working, we have an ambassador now who's gonna be working to bring those, those communities together with the federal government to develop some programs so that we can reach out to people and educate them about things that they can do in their daily lives to make a difference. And, and you know, I, I'm a believer in small changes add up and, and can result in big changes. And um, at heart, I'm an environmental education person. That's where I started my career. And it's, it's very powerful to see how whenever you can reach out to, to young people, starting with young people, to get them thinking about these issues, and they're very great at influencing the older people in their lives to make changes. So I think we need to invest more in environmental education. I think that we need to invest more in, in, in dealing with in communities that are underserved. And I think that we, um, 
we have an opportunity to really make a difference if we can work together to, to, to send out those messages and, and not to reinvent the wheel. I, I think that that's one important thing that I see in the watershed a lot, that there's a good program that's designed for, say, dog waste education outreach, right? And then there's 20 different organizations that are creating the same program over and over again. If we have these programs that have already been developed, we want to share them. And we have, at the partnership, we have many of those programs. So we're working to send out those, those programs, whether it be storm drain marking or or um, dog waste pollution prevention programs to offer them to communities across the watershed just to take what we've already created and to implement it in their communities so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Because it's hard to start from scratch. Resources are limited. So I think if we can do a better job at sharing our success stories and getting them out there that we would be able to, to see a bigger impact. Thank you. Uh, and speaking of education, uh, we've had an audience question here. Um, are there Delaware River stewardship programs in schools? What should citizens do to, I'm sorry, I can't read this, uh, to enhance Delaware River water quality? Uh, so, uh, Alan, I was wondering, you know, what you're doing, what the, your association does to uh, educate folks. To, uh, and, uh, to, to, to promote this kind of stewardship that you would like to see? So our education program is it's pretty simple. We work in about six to eight schools each year, and it's actually supported through a partnership agreement with the National Park Service through the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act to um, do environmental education as a way to help promote stewardship on the Wild and Scenic River. Um, we really aim to get kids out in the river. Uh, our program's a bit limited because we're trying to focus in like May or late September where we can actually take kids out to the river, have them flip over rocks, look for, um, look for bugs, look for shellfish, um, try and build observation skills to look for um, what changes each day. And that's one of the things we do in our summer camp. We take the kids out to the same part of the river and oh, it's like, oh, we're going back to the same part. Can't we do something different? And then they see a great blue heron or they see black bear tracks or they find snakes swimming in the water and they're like, snakes swim? So those become touchstones for those kids later on in life. Um, it is limited in capacity. There's not a lot of environmental education funding out there. There really isn't. Uh, it's not something that our schools really um, have the ability to do at a systematic level. And we're even limited. I mentioned we have 26 municipalities. We're working at six to eight schools and we try to hit uh, middle school, like fifth or sixth grade at each school, and we try to do that each year. How could we reach more schools? Really, the challenge around environmental education is around funding and priorities. And a lot more could be done in that. There's great programs out there. Um, and there's models that work. Um, it's a well-developed field at this point, but it really needs more educators in the classroom and also more opportunities to bring kids out. Uh, schools don't have money to go on field trips anymore, you know? So that's another barrier to doing that type of work. Kathy, do you want to say some more? We, we have several programs that we offer in different parts of the estuary, and one of them is in partnership with the Philadelphia Water Department and the Fairmont Waterworks Interpretive Center. We have um, a program called Muscles in the Classroom, where we provide schools with baby muscles that the kids get to 
get to feed and see them grow over time. And it's really a cool project because, first of all, I mean, most people have not seen a freshwater mussel because, or if they see them, they have no idea what they, they are. If they find them, if they're in a creek and they find some shells. It's a great way to teach kids about um, how there's the ability to, to use nature to, to help us improve water quality. And, and we're looking to grow that program into the other states. But the, it is a really important point that there's very little money. There's way less money now for environmental education than there was in the past. And also with the teachers being so tied to teaching for testing, it's, it's hard. I, I had this vision as I was sitting here. I, um, I'm always, I'm always talking to people about the river because I love the river, I love the watershed, and I'm always so um, surprised that, that other people who love the river are so unaware of really what the river is and what it looks like. And, and um, I'll just tell a very short story. I was talking to someone who lives up in the you know, Stockton, New Hope area. She loves the river. She's on it all the time. We were talking about it, and I told her what I did. And I told her you know, about my experience driving up to that area every single weekend, driving through Philadelphia, getting into Bucks County, how it's such a, um, it's just kind of like a, a time trip, you know, traveling up 95 and seeing all the different uses of the river. And, and she looked at me and she said, well, what, what are you talking about? Like, this is the Delaware River here. And this is like a highly educated person. I'm not kidding you. And, and, she's, and I said, uh, the Delaware River goes all the way down to the mouth of the bay and, and the Atlantic Ocean and travels through Philadelphia and Camden. And she had no idea. Like her piece of the river was this little piece of the river that she loved and took care of and you know recreated on. And, and so as I was sitting here today, I was thinking, wouldn't it be really cool if like every single school in our watershed, there was a requirement that they had to like have a class where they talked about the watershed, showed the whole watershed, so you had a mental map of what it looked like. And you, the kids would see where they are in the watershed as an introduction to get them connected, not only to where they live, but to the bigger picture. And I, there was a question that I read that was submitted, um, I guess it was submitted online about, you know, why are we different than the Chesapeake Bay? You know, I mean, this is something that we've, we've really, we've, we've struggled with this a lot at our organization. You know, how can we build our brand? How can we build awareness? How can we get more people, you know, interested? And I think it's, it's because of some of the things that were said in the video earlier that the river has really been kind of a boundary. It's been a political, you know, border. Um, and, and I think we're making great inroads in terms of, of changing that perception of getting people to see it as something that we can, that can bring people together. And I think that's kind of what the, the power of the Chesapeake Bay is, is that people identify themselves with the Chesapeake Bay if they live there. It's, they're proud of it. They, um, they love the crabs. They love to fish. It's just part of who they are. And, and there are places in our watershed where people feel that way, but we need to instill a greater sense of that with people, I think. And, you know, changing attitudes and behaviors is a hard thing to do, but I love, you know, the work the William Penn Foundation is doing with the Alliance for Watershed Education, with the Circuit Trail, really encouraging people to get out and making the connections. And I think we, we need to do more of that work moving forward. Thanks. Uh, Bruce, you wanted to weigh in on this. Yeah, I just wanted to weigh in on education. I wanted to take the opportunity to plug one of my favorite programs, which is the Watershed Ambassadors. 
to talk about education program. This is something the DEP has done through the AmeriCorps program. We're celebrating our 20th year. We take every year we have a new cohort of 20 ambassadors that work with our partnership agencies. One of the, one of the best ideas was not to bring in 20 people and bring them to Trenton and put them in a DEP building. We put them out with our partners out in the field and then they go out to the schools and they educate people on the watershed message and stewardship. And it's a, it's a tremendous program because education is so important. Um, they just start that ripple going and then the ripple just keeps spreading. Um, so I, I just wanted to let us know. It's also timely because this is AmeriCorps week, um, March 8th through the 14th. And there's all sorts of events planned if you check out the um, AmeriCorps Watershed Ambassadors page. Okay, thank you. Uh, we're running out of time here, but I, I didn't want to let this slip by without the on a very quick uh, attention to some to funding issues. Uh, and I know, Carol, you've been very uh, vocal about uh, DRBC funding over the years. Uh, the federal government is notorious for having basically failed to, uh, to meet its obligations on DRBC funding. Uh, we, we heard in the video that the staffing has been cut. I'm just wondering, I guess the question is, you know, the, the kinds of work that we're talking about, the changes that we want to see, is, is all of that, is it gonna, are they going to be possible without more funding? Um, thanks for the softball. Sure. Um, <laughs> I understand that um, it is in the New Jersey budget for full funding for DRBC from New Jersey. Yeah. The federal government has paid once since 1995. They're supposed to pay 20%. And DRBC is doing the core work that they have to do. They should be the ones that are leading the resiliency uh, plan for the Delaware. They have no ability to do that with um, the, the dollars they have. You know, they're, they're looking at protecting the upper basin, uh, doing the next stages of the PCB cleanups, uh, looking at the DO standards and ammonia changes um, for the estuary, uh, just had the petition for recreation, and they just can't do it all at the same time. And there, when you look at our federal government, and environmental regulations, we need to rely much more on what the states are doing, what DRBC and other regional organizations are doing, and what cities are doing. Um, and so we need to focus on protecting them. All these things we talked about up here are regulated by DRBC. If there is no DRBC, think about where the basin will be. Well, so, so should we assume that, that, should we not expect that any resumption in federal funding then? I mean, is this going to, is this going to put increasing pressure on the states to, uh, to, to carry the it, ball it, here? It, it has been. I mean, you know, the federal government right now doesn't want to support more government. And DRBC is not above the states. It brings the states and the federal government together and looks at the watershed. But, um, but this it, is a it's a hard, hard sell in Washington. That, that, I mean, this is a problem that, that, that well predates the Trump administration, obviously. Correct, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Any, so, anybody thank you else for your like help. to uh, weigh in on the issue of, of funding, where, where more funding should come from? I mean, you know, if we need more funding to, uh, to, to, uh, to deal, deal with this, where's it going to come from? Doug? Well, the quick thing to build off Carol's comments, you know, obviously the feds need to pay up, 
We're, uh, you know, obviously very excited that the Murphy administration budget has full funding for DRBC. We need other states to pay up as well. And historically, the DRBC budget, as allocated by states, has sometimes been used as a political football. But all the issues we've talked about up here for the last hour plus, you know, demand a, you know, an agency that is, that is fully funded. And so, you know, if we're thinking about the ability of DRBC to be able to tack, tackle climate resiliency, to be able to tackle the quality of the water, to be looking at a, a future where the Delaware truly is fishable and swimmable. Arguably, we need more money than, than is uh, currently allocated for the states, but New York, Pennsylvania, especially, need to be paying their full share. I'd like to add something about funding, too. Um, funded partnerships work best. So William Penn's foundation for the Delaware River watershed, that works great. We're able to work with private landowners, match federal or state funds to do projects on the ground. The partnership we have with the National Park Service is great. Um, those are really important for doing work with private landowners. But we can't do all this work without um, stewardship of public resources, and that comes from DEP and the ability of DEP to have staff to review permit applications, to bring their own science to the table. Um, not so much at Bruce's division, but other divisions at DEP, when you're looking at a land use permit, it's, it's gotten to the point where um, an applicant might put in their assessment about what the sensitive resources are on a site. DEP does a permit checklist to make sure it's complete. There may not be enough staff capacity to look at some of the ambiguities that happen on sites where you have intermittent streams, where you have groundwater features that are connected to surface water features. And so what happens is groups like ours have to raise funds to hire private experts to then present that science. And then DEP is in this situation of contested science when really, is that how we should be making decisions about public resources that are already protected by statute or regulation? This is an ongoing challenge that we face, and the DEP needs to have enough resources to be able to do the job to protect the public resources and make sure that those tributaries, uh, wetlands, uh, wildlife habitats have protection. So funded partnerships, great, but we also need to make sure that our public agencies have the resources because they can't delegate those responsibilities to others for protecting the public resource, and they need to have the money to do that job well. I was asked to uh, provide the opportunity for uh, all, each of the panelists to uh, deliver some kind of, uh, to, uh, to deliver a closing comment. Uh, and what I'd like to do is to ask them to do so uh, in light of, to, to, in the, to, to, uh, uh, to answer an overarching, an overarching question here that we've had from the audience, which is, what would be the one thing people in this room should do over the next six months to address the problems and challenges discussed today? So maybe we could start with you, Doug. So from our perspective at Environment New Jersey as a state advocacy group, we always feel the most important thing that people can do is to think not only what they can do in their private lives, but what their public officials can do. And so the ability to show up in Trenton, to show up at stakeholder meetings, to show up in the legislature, to call your representatives, to write a letter to the editor, to show up at public hearings. That is the essence, not only of democracy, but also of social and political change. And so obviously, many of the people in this room are very familiar with that, 
but we need to make sure that our neighbors know about these issues and questions and that they are informed enough and excited enough to be able to show up because we know that with public support, these challenges can be addressed, but only if we get enough people in rooms, not just like this, but rooms that affect state, uh, state policy. Alan? I've got three things that you can do in the next six months. One is uh, that Executive Order 100 was mentioned. DEP is going to go through its rules, and at some point, they're going to be asking for public comment on a range of rules to better protect our natural resources. Participate in the public comment process and get other people, new constituencies, to do that. The other is, uh, I mentioned funded partnerships work great. New Jersey is very lucky to have the William Penn Foundation in Philadelphia supporting a lot of environmental work. There aren't a lot of private philanthropic institutions in New Jersey as generous as William Penn Foundation that support the environment. Most of the funders are ten dollars to $20,000 a year. If you have friends or know other people who have foundations or work with other foundations or donor-advised funds, ask them to support the environment. We have tons of ideas about what they could do. We'd be happy to be experts to help advise that. The other is, it's river cleanup season. And if you haven't gone out to a river cleanup, ours is April 18th, it's a Saturday, 9 to 12, come on up. But a bunch of other watershed associations are doing that. So if you haven't had a chance to come out to the river or other rivers, um, and you wanna do something with a direct tangible benefit, a river cleanup is a great way of doing that and get other people who maybe haven't had that opportunity before to come out with you. Bruce. Thank you, I'll just continue on the, on the partnership theme here because partnerships are so important uh, to DEP in getting our, our work done. Take advantage of our grant programs, respond to our requests for proposals, um, take advantage of that grant money, put it to good use, um, get some projects uh, installed on the ground that are gonna help mitigate and improve water quality. Um, advocate and become involved. I can't, I can't echo Doug's and Alan's sentiments more. Um, we need, we get pushed from both sides. We really do. Um, as a regulator, we sort of have to walk that fine line in the middle, but we, we need people to advocate and push so, so we have the support to make the changes that not everybody necessarily wants or supports. Um, lastly, it's just, I think it's really important to get students involved. Uh, if there's some way that you can get students involved, um, I would advocate and endorse that. Um, we had students from Camden show up at our public hearing um, for the C1 Waters and advocate on behalf of the designation of the Cooper River. And they were out there and through their work with their high school doing water monitoring, uh, they got connected to that river. And I think it's just so important. We bring also the Green Ambassadors Program from the Camden schools out to our field offices where they go out on the water and do some oyster work and do some uh, macroinvertebrate work and fish identification. And it's really important to engage these folks because the students, these students are our future scientists and they're the ones that are gonna be up here in 20 years um, making the important changes. Thank you. Kathy. Well, I echo everything that the other panelists have already said, and um, I would encourage you, uh, our organization has a newsletter that has a pretty broad distribution, 
and it goes out to over 25,000 people. And we have a section in there where, where we, we want people's stories about experiences that, that they've had in the Delaware River watershed and, and how those experiences have impacted their lives. We believe that by sharing stories, we can get people thinking about their interactions with the environment, or maybe it will encourage them to go to the place that you visited before that meant something to you. So our website is DelawareEstuary.org. I encourage you to go to our website, send us your stories, and um, send us your events. If you're involved in any events, send them. We'll help promote them. And also on our website, we have information about all of the locations that are involved in the South Jersey scrub, so you can get information about getting involved in a cleanup. Carol. All right. Um, vote would be one. Um, two would be get involved in your municipality. If they have an environmental advisory committee, commission, uh, or just with the uh, elected officials directly. Um, there's so much on their plate that, you know, if you come in and give them good reasons why something should be done, you know, you can be the impetus um, for change. I think it's important to keep in mind that top-down, bottom-up, um, while we have to help our governments do the things they need to do, um, we can all do things from the bottom. That, that's really, really important. And finally, um, lo love the river. You know, the river has a lot to offer this region. And when I say the river, just not the main stem, the tributary that might be closest to you, get to know it. We need to know the science of water for the basis of what we do. So, you know, learn about your stretch of the river, learn about what climate change might do to it, and, um, and talk to at least five other people about it uh, in the next six months. Thanks. I, I have one other one I forgot. Oh, please. <laughs> I just want to give a plug. I mean, New Jersey Spotlight has done a great job highlighting many of the issues in the watershed, but I would encourage you all to check out Delaware Currents online. It is an online news source that specifically focuses on the Delaware River, and there's an amazing journalist who has basically been dedicating her life to working on these issues for the past couple of years, and she really gives very in-depth perspectives on the, the different stories in the watershed and also the challenges. And I think it's DelawareCurrents.org, I believe. So I would encourage you to check that out. Great. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. <clears throat> Excuse me, we're actually, we're over time, which I, I, I assume is a good thing. Um, but anyway, um, I'd like to thank all our panelists very much for giving up their time and, and, and giving us uh, such a really interesting insights this morning. Oh, and uh, John's coming up now. I also want to thank John Hurdle for leading the discussion. Thank you very much, John. I wanted to let you all know that we will be sending all of you uh, sort of a, a um, summary of the event, including uh, the live stream. Um, there will also be, I think John's writing a story. Are you writing it today? Do you? Okay, that's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, but it, yes, right. I haven't, you haven't been assigned it yet. Um, so that will be coming as well, but also maps and any other information that, that is being provided as well as that op opening video as well. So that is something that uh, we like folks to circulate to others who couldn't be here or couldn't watch uh, live and keep the conversation going. So thank you all very much for joining us. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Um, and thank you all and, and uh, good, goodwill. Thank you.
And we hope you enjoyed this program from NJ Spotlight. If you have comments or suggestions about these podcasts, please email info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services for this podcast provided by State Broadcast News, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on the web at statebroadcastnews.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.